It's time to heed the call of the wild and seek the higher calling. Higher Calling is the voice of mountain and forest wildlife and is hosted by award-winning wildlife journalist and conservationist Chester Moore. Be ready for an increase in altitude and a relentless pursuit of the creatures that dwell there. Welcome to The Higher Calling. If you've listened for long, you know one thing. I love wild turkeys. I love hunting wild turkeys. I love eating wild turkeys. And I love photographing wild turkeys and writing about them. So I'm excited for our guest today. Calling in from Texas Parks and Wildlife Department is the Wild Turkey Program Director, Jason Harden. Welcome to Higher Calling. Thanks, Jester. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you on. So I guess first off, what the heck does a wild turkey program director do? <laughs> I sometimes wonder that myself. You know, it, it's uh, pretty interesting. We, we do a lot of different things mm-hmm. uh, from working with other states to bring eastern wild turkeys into some of our local landscapes mm-hmm. for restoration. If it's uh, harvest recommendation, harvest management, if it's working with uh, some of our Pittman Robertson funds or our Upland Game Percent funds to try to get habitat work done on the ground or even the research of that bird, um, what's going on, what knowledge is lacking, and, and what can we do with our, our university partners to get out and, and try to get more knowledge. We're doing the best job we can to manage that population. So it can it can range from uh, a number of different aspects, and that's what keeps it fun. Yeah, so it's obviously, uh, uh, you know, it's not like being the Wild Turkey Program Director for Rhode Island. I mean, Texas, <laughs> there's a lot of geography here and a lot of turkeys. Absolutely. Lots of, lots of turkeys. We probably have over a half million uh, Rio Grande wild turkeys in the state of Texas. We have some of the highest harvest rates, not harvest rates, but number of birds bagged on an annual basis here in Texas. Uh, some of the highest number of hunters. We're a destination state for, uh, for a lot of hunters to come and get their Rio Grande wild turkeys. So um, popular state to, uh, to hunt turkeys. They're readily available, and uh, we'll keep growing more. That's awesome. So let's talk about that Rio Grande turkey. I mean, this is a turkey that ranges down from into Mexico through Texas up into Kansas, even a little further north, and seems to be one of the turkeys that people like to transplant. I mean, I just talked to a guy who hunted Rio Grande turkeys in Hawaii. That's right. Yeah, uh, Rios are very adaptable. They're all over the country now, even beyond their historic range in in California, Washington, Oregon. Uh, Idaho, you can find reels all over the place. And then hybridization of those birds uh, going up into Oklahoma, Kansas, and uh, Nebraska. So it's a bird that does really well, prefers the more uh, arid or semi-arid environments like we have in, across the central portion of Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they do well in a lot of landscapes. Well, you know, turkeys, the reason, one of the reasons I'm so interested in them, in my opinion, if you get turkey conservation right, kind of everything else in that environment falls into place because turkeys are kind of specific to things like proper roosting trees in these deeper forests, you know, needing to have, um, you know, uh, more open forests in some of the pine plantations and stuff that we typically see maybe in eastern Texas and in the southeastern United States. And um, with the Rio Grande turkey, the, the basis of that's like you think of turkeys in South Texas, you think of turkeys in the Texas Hill Country. And there's a lot of different landscapes there. Um, and Texas being 97% privately owned, how do you manage the turkey, other than like maybe seasons and bag limits and stuff, how do you manage that turkey in Texas with 254 counties and many of those having Rio Grande turkeys? Yeah, I mean, the first and foremost thing that Texas Parks and Wildlife can control 
with this, this bird being a resident game bird is, is the regulation. When, mm-hmm. How many birds can you harvest in a season? Um, how long is that season? When do you open that season? Fortunately for us in Texas, um, the Rio Grande wild turkey is uh, not pursued as aggressively as you might see birds in other states, especially mm-hmm. the southeast with the eastern wild turkey, where we might see harvest rates up around 30%. We're down around 10% harvest rate. We're still working on that, trying to get that exact. Um, so we can actually be a lot more liberal than a lot of other states. So we have a, a season that goes from the Saturday closest to March 18th down in South Texas, and it goes all the way till close to mid-May. I think the season ends on May 17th this year. And that doesn't include the youth season on the front end and the back end of those seasons. We provide a lot of opportunity because we know that our harvest rates are so low that we're not going to shoot that population out. Um, that population was wiped out uh, essentially around the turn of the 20th century, mm-hmm. but we've done a great job of restoring that population. So that's one of the things we control. We also help with the restoration of that bird. Uh, going into landscapes or such as the Trinity River watershed where we just it's a void in that landscape of turkey, one of the last areas of the state where we haven't done or haven't been successful at restoration so that's another thing that Texas Parks and Wildlife does we, our staff we go out trap birds and put them into areas that we think has suitable habitat but maybe isn't connected to a larger population where those birds can make make it there on their own so you guys are constantly like evaluating habitat absolutely so we have so much information there's so much research done we know what the habitat those birds need and like you mentioned they, they occur in a lot of different habitat types but the structures a lot a lot of times they'll be exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Good tall roost trees to, to get up in at night, uh, nesting cover, brood habitat, and this general usable space. So we, we have a real good idea of what that looks like. What we have to do is go out and make sure we have enough of it in a single location where we can create a large enough population so they can have sustainability over the long term. So that's some of the things that, that we do at Parks and Wildlife. And again, like I said, help focus and direct research, work with our partners like the National Wild Federation mm-hmm. to get more bang for the buck on the ground. Yeah, and that's crucial. And it's interesting because I know that turkeys have been commodities to help other wildlife in Texas. I was at the sheep show for the Wild Sheep Foundation, and I was listening to Clay Brewer, who was once our sheep program leader in Texas, now works for the Sheep Foundation, talking to the head of the Nevada Fish and Game Department about the time they traded turkeys for bighorns. <laughs> you know, we like right. sent them a bunch of Rios. They sent sheep because Texas is such an That's abundant right. thing. That's right. we, we've done a lot of bartering in our days. <laughs> we traded uh, pheasants and armadillos and, <laughs> and everything else. Uh, today, working with the National Wild Turkey Federation, they, they help us uh, get over a lot of those humps. And we can uh, work with other states a lot more fluidly than we could historically, you know, making sure that we're on the up and up when it comes to Lacey Act and taking birds across state lines, and they've been a great partner in that effort. No, it's a, it's a great thing to see because one thing that's neat about turkey restoration is there's that iconic moment of, like, the birds being released and, and all those kind of things that people can kind of sink their teeth into, and, and people, can, people may not be able to understand controlled fire and suppressing natural fire real easily sometimes, but they can understand birds being back on the ground. And uh, yep, th- that's absolutely. a r- really cool thing. And it's interesting. I don't think most people realize that you guys are still trying to find out where there's holes in the Rio's, you know, territory and trying to fill those birds in. Absolutely. So you, you look at that, uh, that, that landscape between I-35 and I-45 going down the Trinity River corridor mm-hmm. from Dallas to Houston. And that's one of the highest population densities we have in the state. 
large riparian areas like the Trinity River uh, that aren't, there was a lot of available land for those birds to get in there without being disturbed by humans. So we're mm-hmm. trying to fill in that void as best we can. It's kind of on the edge, it's that, that edge of where the eastern bird historically would have would have played out and the Rio would have picked up. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the work we're, work we're doing right now is, you know, what is the appropriate subspecies for that landscape? Uh, where where does that line occur and does it change over time? So those are some of the things that we're looking at right now. Well, in an email exchange I had with you, you mentioned there were some earlier, you know, stockings of like Rio Grande's and the Piney Woods of East Texas, but that never really stuck. And I just talked with officials in Arizona that they had tried to stock Merriam's in the Sky Island areas where there were Gould's turkeys, and that didn't work either. So I guess matching the subspecies to that particular habitat is very important. It is. And the Piney Woods is one thing. You know, you can go to the Lost Pines around Bastrop. There are real grand wild turkeys in that habitat, but that those trees are adapted to that semi-arid mm-hmm. landscape, mm-hmm. and so are the turkeys. Um, but when you get in a landscape where you see 45, 50, 60 inches of rainfall, the real grand wild turkeys, for whatever reason, just don't seem to adjust well to that. Now, that's not to say they didn't last for a while. Uh, we had some places where those birds lasted 10, 10 or plus years, uh, but we do realize and, and are now making a recommendation in the piney woods of East Texas to do nothing but eastern wild turkeys. And I've got to go on a couple of those uh, with some kids in our Wild Wishes program. We have a program that grants wildlife encounters for kids who have a terminal illness or loss of a parent or sibling. And TPWD and NWTS been nice enough to let some of our kids participate in those releases in this last year, which was an amazing experience for them, you know. And I learned a lot about what it takes to get turkeys to Texas, you know, the taking the money from the Upland game stamp and then NWTF helping with transports and then having to have these birds check for parasites and diseases and all of these things. So this isn't like a haphazard thing. Hey, boy, let's round up a bunch of turkeys. You guys are making sure you do it right. Absolutely. Uh, So during the latter part of our stocking efforts back in uh, the 80s, 90s, and into the 2000s, and Mm -hmm. based on research, we found that you know, maybe that just wasn't enough birds in East Texas to get the job done. So we did more research looking at Dr. Ro Lopez's uh, super stocking model, mm-hmm. which is just, you know, mathematical models on paper. We did empirical testing of that on the ground, foresight. It showed promise. Then we developed a new uh, habitat evaluation technique. That's another thing Dr. Lopez recognized during the latter part of the block stocking era, you know, that 80s, 90s, 2000s. And implemented all that, and it took years to get to that point. Mm-hmm. And even today, whenever a, a landowner calls us up and asks for uh, us to come out and look at the site to do a restocking effort, it could be a two-year process from the time he makes that phone call until we get to the point where we're actually opening boxes letting birds go. Nice. And even then, it has to go through so many different phases. We want to make sure we're doing it the best way we can, get it right, success free success. And if we can be successful, there's going to be more opportunity to do it into the future to expand that population. And, the, and that's a great thing because, like, I have I hunt and fish around uh, Auburn, New York, uh, every few years with a good friend of mine. And um, almost every flight into the Syracuse airport, I see turkeys by the tarmac. Uh, yeah. And I know that some of these turkeys are like turkeys that are, are, you know, hanging around airports or golf courses and stuff like that. So it's a good way to take, quote, unquote, nuisance turkeys, I guess, and in areas where there are plenty of eastern birds and help you know, uh, the East Texas population. Yeah. And, you know, we'd love to get get those birds from Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, uh, 
you know, our, our neighboring states. Mm-hmm. But those states are seeing similar turkey declines as the rest of us. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times we take the opportunities where we can get them. If we have a place like Iowa or North Carolina, like you mentioned, airport birds, if that opportunity presents itself, we're going to take advantage of that. Yeah. Uh, the birds are precious. They're, they're very uh, adaptable. As long as we can provide the right type of habitat, those birds can take advantage of it. So, you know, it's not – you can't always have it exactly the way you want, get neighboring state birds, but uh, we do the best job we can. Now, you mentioned declines like Louisiana. I live right in Orange on the border, and I looked at Louisiana numbers, and it was scary, the decline that they've had over yeah. there. And uh, even when I went and hunted New York, New York's got abundant turkeys, but there's been a 40% decline in a decade uh, up there. Yeah. So a lot going on with turkeys on the ground and things like that. And um, I know the last time I talked with my uh, friend Annie Farrell from the National Wild Turkey Federation, she said she thought that you guys probably estimated, what, around 10,000 Easterns in the Piney Woods right now? Yeah, Piney Woods and in the, in the northern post oak mm-hmm. uh, savannah up around Red River in that country. Uh, that's a pretty accurate estimate. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, when I was a kid hunting in South Newton County Hunting Club, there was zero in East Texas. If there were, there was maybe a pocket or two, you know, so it's amazing to see this landscape being filled back up with this great bird. And it's a tribute to what Texas Parks and Wildlife have done, National Wild Turkey and the private landowners and everyone who have participated in, you know, making this a huntable population again. Absolutely. And we're still trying to do that. You know, our, our ultimate goal is not just to put those birds on the ground. It's great to see those birds, great to hear them. You know, I, I live in Leon County, and each spring the last few years, we'll, we'll see a couple of birds here and there for a few weeks, and they're gone. It's a thrill. But ultimately, we want to create more hunting opportunities. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's going to help. You know, everything that we are doing is paid for by the hunters. If it's the Pittman-Robertson dollars, and you buy uh, guns and ammo, that excess tax that goes on that, or if it's buying your hunting license, your upper game percent, it's hunters that are making this happen, and we want to increase hunting opportunity as much as we can. Absolutely. You know, one of the things I like about turkey conservation is it benefits so many other species. The, I've lived in East Texas my whole life. I've hunted in East Texas among everywhere else around the world my whole life. And the only place I've ever seen stands of red-cockaded woodpecker and endangered species were in areas that were strategically managed for turkeys. Uh, yep. And I thought that was so cool. And while, you know, I've, in, in the East Coast, I've talked to people about how there are more indigo snakes and gopher tortoises in these areas managed for turkeys. That's great, but there isn't exactly a national gopher tortoise association that has 50,000 right. people meeting in Nashville like NWTF. So what a great cornerstone species we have here. Absolutely. If you think about longleaf pine, shortleaf pine, Botman sparrow, red cockaded woodpecker, mm-hmm. uh, Louisiana pine snake. There's These one. are all animals that are driven by a, a fire-managed mm-hmm. environment. Mm-hmm. Texas, in general, was managed by fire. Historically, Native Americans, natural fire, um, and these species adapt to that. You can't always sell fire, but you can sell wild turkeys. It's hard to sometimes to sell an endangered species to some uh, uh, industrial landscape, mm-hmm. but you can sell wild turkeys. But like you said, there's so much benefit to putting that bird on the ground, helping people with the management. It's not just going to improve habitat for wild turkeys. It's not going to only increase hunting opportunities so we can continue to fund these type of projects, but all those threatened and endangered species uh, and rare plant communities like pitcher plant bogs. Mm-hmm. They're all going to benefit from putting turkeys on the ground because there's going to be more motivation to actually get out there and do the habitat work, especially prescribed fire that's needed. Let's talk about prescribed fire for a minute. I mean, anything nowadays requires a government process. So 
what has to happen? Let's say a landowner um, has a tract of land that he wants to manage better for turkeys. I mean, what has to happen to do a prescribed burn? So you have the right in Texas as a landowner to burn your property. Okay. You need to follow the rules and regulations mm -hmm. uh, that are associated with that. You don't want to burn during a burn ban. Um, but you will be held liable if you don't do it the right way. Okay. So having that knowledge of how to do it the right way. Don't just hear that, hey, fire's good. Let's go start flipping some matches. You need to have a burn plan. You need to know what your fuels are like. Are you burning leaf litter? Are you burning grass? Are you burning under forest? Mm -hmm. You know, what's out there? So working with experts to get that knowledge, get that experience, going on a few burns with people so you can be exposed to it. Realize we're not creating wildfires here. We're opening up that understory, making a more park-like setting, and, uh, and that's our goal. And you do that by having good knowledge of your fuels, good knowledge of the weather, and what weather is necessary to get those fuels to burn in a safe way. And Parson Wildlife, Natural Resource Conservation Service, the National Water Treaty Federation, there's so many organizations out there that want to help landowners. All they have to do is ask. That's good to know. You know, we'll put the information out there with this on how to how to reach out if people want to do that. And um, thinking about that's the eastern Texas, but would prescribed burning benefit Rio Grande's and their habitat as well? Absolutely. So Texas as a whole is going to burn. If we want to or not. One of the great things about prescribed fire is you burn under the conditions that you set, mm -hmm. that you identify. You know, just a couple of years ago, 2011, horrific drought. We see millions of acres burning. Yeah, all the Bastrop stuff and all that. Yeah, you go to Bastrop and you see areas where they've been burning, and you see the damage is limited right next door where they haven't been burning. It's, it's just nuked. So fire improves habitat mm -hmm. for wildlife. It can improve habitat for grazing animals like cattle and livestock. But it also is a safety measure. It reduces fuel loads, uh, juniper, yopon you know, whatever that might be, just general leaf litter. And it reduces those fuel loads and makes for a safer environment. So fire does come through, and Texas will burn. <laughs> One yeah. way or another, Texas is going to burn. And if you've uh, created the setting uh, where there's reduced fuel loads, you're actually going to be in a safer location. See, and that's a great selling point there, and uh, especially for people who live out in farm communities and stuff like that. So, you know, good way to take care of your stuff, manage your wildlife better, and um, – you don't have so much stuff that's like throwing gasoline on the fire out there. Absolutely. And it's a cultural thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, hopefully we can continue to put those smoke signals in the air to help help uh, shift that, that cultural value to where fire is something that we want to see on the ground. And uh, we want to see those smoke columns. I was out in New Mexico uh, in the Los Alamos general area last fall doing some photography, trying to find some Merriam's turkeys, looking for bighorns. And... Um, I've been turned on to this area because there have been historic fires about 15 years earlier. And then they said the habitat had gotten really, really thick and stuff. Well, the fire burned it out. And now they were able to relocate bighorns there. And the turkey population has exploded and because of the opening up. And, um, but that can be done, you're saying, in a more a safer way than obviously some big natural catastrophic fire. And maybe to kind of curtail damage if one starts nearby. That's right. Man, that's... We, need to, we need to increase flexibility for landowners to have that ability but mm -hmm. got to do it from a knowledge standpoint from an experience standpoint so getting out there with people who've done it and there's a lot of programs available for private landowners and industry uh ngos there's so many different uh avenues for people to get out there and get experience with that and recommend folks take advantage of that like i said you know fire is great when it's in the right hands and done 
from a plan standpoint, mm-hmm. not just willy-nilly go out and just start throwing matches. Make a plan. It's a plan that you should make a year or more in advance <laughs> and mm-hmm. be looking for those weather variables to occur in the time that you want to burn. So lots of experience necessary, but a great tool in the riding room. Well, living here near the Gulf Coast, we know that there is a um, light north wind blowing. They burn the marsh because uh, all that blows out toward the Gulf of Mexico, not to the city. And um, it's light wind, and they don't have to worry about the big, brutal coastal south, you know, southeast winds that come in and turn everything up. So we're kind of used to fires around here, but it's always a marsh because of they're managing the marsh for waterfowl and for cattle. And stuff like that in that area is, but it's uh, it's I think it's a topic for sure that needs more more discussion. Is that the benefits of fire to wildlife? Absolutely. Now we're talking. We have we talked about the Rio Grande. We've talked about the Eastern Turkey. Uh, let's talk about some threats other than just the habitat issue. Um, what, if any, evidence is there to suggest that feral hogs uh, are cause damage to turkey numbers, maybe by rooting around nests and those kind of things? You know, the, the, there's a, several different projects that have been done here in Texas. Mm-hmm. Recently, Dr. Dave Hewitt down in South Texas and his graduate students did some work on a military base, mm-hmm. and they found significant impact from feral hogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been some anecdotal data coming out of the Gus England Wildlife Ranch area where we've restored uh, wild turkeys several times, and they noticed an increase in, in the number of poults following a, a big eradication of feral hogs. That doesn't mean that you know, one thing equaled the other. Sure. But, you know, it's somewhat suggestive of that. But there have been other projects where we've seen feral hogs um, come in, we get them on camera on our turkey nest, but usually they're a secondary or tertiary predator. Mm-hmm. Some fox, raccoon, raven gets in there, disturbs that nest, whatever left over starts to sink the hog, goes in and finds it. But whenever you go into that nest, if you hadn't had a camera there to know that there had been one or two predators toward them, you just see that hog sign. And obviously, the hog did it. So, I'm not going to say you know, yeah. feral hogs are feral hogs, and and they're fun to shoot. So let's go shoot plenty of them. Uh, any nest disturbed by an exotic animal is uh, is a negative. Mm-hmm. But there are plenty of predators out there that, that have an impact, and usually it's localized on which predator is going to be the top nest predator. Hogs are usually on the list, so they're usually pretty far down the list. I would assume uh, raccoons probably do a pretty good job on this. Raccoons, rat snakes. Uh, uh, jays and, and other cor- uh, uh, corvidae family are jays, crows, ravens. They can all have a, a big impact. Um, there's no doubt the best nesting habitat that we have in East Texas, we're still going to lose uh, nest predators. Mm-hmm. But like I said, it just kind of depends on which one you're looking at and which study. Regionally, predators are going to change, but we do know that predators are going to be an impact on our population. And especially when we're looking at doing a restoration when we're trying to restore that turkey population in certain areas in Texas, those predators are a problem. We got to get the habitat right first, but predators, including feral hogs, uh, need to be uh, something we're thinking about. Well, I know on adult birds that in Chester Moore's anecdotal analysis from my old deer lease near Brady, they would the, the bobcats would whack the adults. <laughs> like yeah. we would find a lot of bobcat predation uh, on on adult turkeys there. I mean, I say over a three-year spell. The great thing about Rios, mm-hmm. yeah. The great thing about Rios is there's so many of them that you can kind of get over a lot of that predation. Sure. sure you can do, go out and, and do targeted management on your property or your lease uh, and, and maybe have a, a bit of a benefit. 
you're part of a larger landscape meta population. So even if you do have numbers knocked down, you should have an opportunity for those numbers to rebound when conditions get, get favorable. Mm-hmm. In East Texas, where we have these islands of population, if we lose too many nests, that's a major impact. So uh, we don't have the connectivity of those populations like we do for the Rio. Mm-hmm. Not just an ocean of birds, they're these little islands of birds. So we have to protect them until we do grow those numbers large enough that predation has less of an impact on that larger population. Now, you mentioned like islands of habitat and connectivity. And uh, from an email exchange with you, I just learned about Newton County where I've been hunting the last uh, couple of weeks here. Uh, the southernmost county in Texas, you can hunt eastern turkeys. You said, that, you know, we looked at the data that, you know, 2000 was the last stocking. That those birds are actually probably birds that are connected from the Louisiana population. Absolutely. You were to do DNA, I, I, I have no doubt. Those birds don't recognize our state lines. They don't care about our state lines. Sure. They can fly over a river, no problem. Yep. So uh, wherever you see population in Louisiana, uh, uh, along that Texas state line, they're just going to spill right over into Texas unless there's some barrier preventing that. And uh, Lake Toledo Bend mm-hmm. is such a barrier. Yeah, I wouldn't imagine a turkey wanting to go across that expanse. Uh, no, <laughs> that's pretty they big. Get around the edges, but there's only so far north that they're going to continue to go. Yeah, and maybe in you know five years, ten years, twenty years, that population grows and expands, and uh, is not as dependent on Louisiana. But right now, um, we do see a lot depend on those birds spilling over Louisiana. Same thing for Oklahoma mm-hmm. and Arkansas and North Texas. Well, it's really interesting, uh, Jason, because. There's a lot in the news right now about like migrations and wildlife. Of course, a turkey isn't a migratory animal like a like a caribou, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But there is the migration in terms of birds trading between here and there, and I think it's an important issue to bring up about connectivity. I mean, even if you look where this, the, long, the the longest mammal migration in 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 America is the mule deer migration in Wyoming, and there's all kind of problems with highways or having to build underpasses for mule deer and all kind of other stuff. So. I guess connectivity of habitat is an important thing to look at. Absolutely. <clears throat> and that's one of the reasons we've identified several focal landscapes in East Texas. Um, we can take this shotgun approach and, and scatter birds all over the place. Uh, with these super stockings, we're going to create little islands of population that maybe we don't have connectivity in, in the future. So working with these focal landscapes, identifying those long riparian corridors. Those riparian corridors serve as highways for those birds to move up and down mm-hmm. uh, throughout that landscape. And usually includes 10, 12, 15 counties that we're working in. So providing that connectivity, focusing our restocking efforts and our habitat management efforts within those focal landscapes, we're hoping that we can, again, have success, and with that proven success, expand these projects in the future. No, that's a great thing, and I think it's great that you guys have, you know, trial and error looking back to pin-raised turkeys in the 70s, and which is a great idea. Too bad that doesn't work. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like it is a shame that doesn't work. <laughs> crank out a lot of birds. A lot easier than the process we're going through now. Yeah, but what you're doing though is is doing it the right way. You know, you want to have an impact. You want it to work. You don't want to be put and take population. I mean, it's nice that we're able to put and take rainbow trout. You know, but it's also nice the Guadalupe River produces. You know, can, they can live year around there. We don't have that anywhere else in the state. You know, so uh, being able to have these sustainable populations is important long term and um you know I-, I could see a day 20 years from now where you know if this keeps going what we're seeing here where we have double the number of turkeys in east texas and there's a a richer tradition or maybe a new tradition of born out of hey 
I've got to get me not just an Easter to my slam. I got to go to East Texas and get me one. Absolutely. And you want to talk about a trophy? An Eastern, Eastern wild turkey out of East Texas is a trophy. And you want to? We shoot. I think we're at about 167 birds harvested in all of East Texas so far this year, based on our mandatory harvest uh, requirements. And that's a good year for us. You know, so wow. We still got time to go, brother. Let uh, me tell you so, something. I had one. I had two come in the other day. So <laughs> we we have this. Uh, I so we see two male heads pop up above the tall grass. And they look gobblerish, but I'm like, I can't shoot a Jake, you know, got to let them breed, right? I'm looking and looking. I'm like, you're going to come in, you suckers. They left. The gobblers, the, a dang hen had to come out and bring them all the other direction, you know. But, yeah. you know, it's that moment of like, man, I have took my first Eastern last year in New York, and that was awesome. But, man, getting one here would be pretty incredible. Absolutely. I mean, it is definitely just the experience alone, just knowing that there's not a lot of birds out there that you can find that those few birds that are available that, you know, we can go out and sustainably take, um, and then to actually be successful with that. Um, a lot of people may measure spurs or beards, that experience alone of getting to hear that bird gobble, getting to see it. Oh, yeah. But even then to lay your hands on that bird that you've harvested, um, it's, it's pretty special. Well, you know, last year I set out on a quest to photograph the grand slam, uh, and um, I was able to do it because of, you know, like being a Parks and Wildlife guy, being a wildlife journalist isn't exactly, you know, the way you're going to bankroll a mansion. So I had to kind of yep. do it around industry events like the fishing trade show in Florida I have to go to, you know, got my Osceola and different things like that. And um, that was really exciting. You know, I, I got my Merriam's, which was a bearded Merriam cinnamon phase hen with poles, <laughs> awesome. which was oh. nuts. Um, but I a lot of boxes with that one. Man, I was like, I could if I'd have shot a Merriam's, I wouldn't have been happier to me. Like if I, you know, I was in range, I got the photo, but I just a few days ago got this photo of a Newton County gobbler. And this gobbler sat in that tree for two and a half hours in front of us and never gobbled, yeah. never moved. Um, we had all yeah. these theories. He knew what, was up. Yeah. <laughs> and well, what happened was we thought they were roosting way further in the creek bottom. And all the rest of them were, but two gobblers. They were right on the trees on the outer edge. And we were like, they saw us come in. It was one of those mornings where I could have, you know, you could have walked all night. It was so bright, you know. And the other gobbler was strutting along the tree, gobbling for 20 minutes, and he took off after a hen. And then this one stayed two and a half hours. He finally walked around in the sunlight. I got this beautiful photo. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to try to come back and get you. But getting that photo to share with people that, hey, this is a Newton County, East Texas, yeah. Eastern Turkey, this is just as exciting to me. You know, that's like, that's Absolutely. That's a big deal, and um, and it shows, you know, I get chills thinking about it right now, all the work and all the people that over the years with Texas Parks and Wildlife and National Wild Turkey, the blood, sweat, and tears of managing those birds, and even the game wardens in, like, Newton County over the years, that, which has had a lot of poaching problems, um, securing those birds, protecting those roosts and those kind of things. It takes a lot of people to make this turkey thing work, doesn't it? It does, and that, that goes, like you said earlier, to the landowners, the hunters, all of us. We're all working together mm -hmm. to make this thing successful. Well, I got to ask one more question here because I'm semi-obsessed with this topic. So, um, Merriam's and the Trans-Pecos. I know there are a few. Um, and, um, you know, has there been any official surveys or anything like that in recent years? You know, the, the last bit of work that was done was done out of so raw looking at the Fort Davis population, and they mm -hmm. estimated, this is the early 2000s, that about 500 pure Miriams remain. 
Mm-hmm. We stocked that landscape in 1982 with about, I think it was around 42 Miriam's wild turkeys. Mm-hmm. And they did really well. But during that same time frame, we were still putting Rio Grande turkeys along the riparian corridors. And those birds did well during the 90s. Mm-hmm. And they expanded into the Davis Mountains, and they kind of essentially bred out that Miriam mm-hmm. uh, subspecies. Now they're Mirios. So they're, uh, they're still birds there, maybe a few pure Miriams remaining. But most of them have been bred out. Um, that's not really not confident that that's the historic range of that bird. Mm-hmm. Uh, the habitat looks right, but if you look at the distance from uh, from the uh, Guadalupe Mountains, where they, it is part of the historic distribution, and you can see how it might be difficult for those birds to find the Davis Mountains. But um, we do still see a few Miriams around the Guadalupe Mountains, mm-hmm. uh, still in over from New Mexico. So there are still a few, but they're pretty far and few between. This is like my white whale. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to photograph one. So, in Texas. <laughs> I will photograph one. It will happen. I see. Uh, so I was hard enough to get my Eastern and East Texas. <laughs> it took two years and many trips. Yeah. Um, but and it, it's just kind of cool to talk about this to make people think, oh, my God, there was Merriam's here in Texas, and we got Eastern turkeys and the Rio Grande. It's all about yep. the people listening, making them exciting about wild turkeys, excited about what Texas is doing for them. And I got to salute you guys at Texas Parks and Wildlife um, for the the work you're doing on this great bird. I mean, we are a destination state, but you mentioned a lower percentage of harvest. Um, we're not high in the in like native turkey hunters uh, because, no. and I think no. a lot of that has to do with in other states. I mean, it's a lot of public land, um, a whole lot of public land, and the fact that they basically have turkey and deer to hunt. We got everything to hunt here, you know. Yeah. And uh, so it's 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 neat to see the level of uh, impact you guys are having and the keeping a watchful eye on this great bird. We're doing what we can, and, and it, it helps to have folks like yourself out there who are much better than we are getting that word out and, and sharing the, the efforts that are going on with us, our partners, and WTF and the private landowners and the hunters. You guys make that connection for us. So. Uh, the media is definitely a partner in, in this effort. Well, thank you. It's definitely my honor and privilege to do what I can. I love these birds. And uh, see, I grew up here in East Texas, and I was a little. I, I'm, I've been obsessed with wildlife since like I could breathe, and I, and like I'm literally. It was. It's been an obsession my whole life. Just anything wildlife related. And I knew that that there were turkeys that's supposed to have been in East Texas when I was a kid. You know, like there's supposed to be turkeys here. Never saw him. And then my uncle went on a day lease in Lano and came back with a turkey. And that was like someone coming back with like a giant elk or something to me. I'm like, he shot a turkey, like a real wild turkey, you know. And then the next year I got to go out to Lano on that same day lease and I saw wild turkeys. And it was it was just unbelievable. So to, to be able to see that here and have these birds here. And, you know, uh, I, I challenge a hunter, if you've never turkey hunted, if you go turkey hunting and you got a big gobbler, call him back and forth, come into a decoy, and you don't like it, I'm going to go ahead and say it here. You're weird. I mean, that's, yeah, something wrong with you. Something's wrong, <laughs> folks. That's a fun, fun experience. You know, and there's nothing better than doing it yourself, too. Yep. I, I got a buddy that, that I've turkey hunted with and kind of gotten him into the sport, called in birds. He, they've come in. He's taking a bird with me. But when I, we took him out, Gave him a box call, put him in a bush by himself, and left him. He called that bird in for himself. He comes back and says, "Okay, I get it." And yep. now he's a lifelong, you know, going to be hunting turkeys every spring for the rest of his life. Yeah. But it, once you've done it, you've had that mm-hmm. experience of that bird 
talking to you, coming and displaying the way they do, yelling at you, you know. Um, it, it, I don't see how you can't get your blood pumping and, uh, and just get hooked on that. Yeah, it's incredible. And what a great way to end the show. Jason Harden, Texas Parks and Wildlife Wild Turkey Program Director. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you being on Higher Calling. It's been great, Jeff. Appreciate it. Hey, folks, before we go, let me tell you about my good friends at the Houston Safari Club Foundation. This is an organization that supports hunting and conservation. They've taken hundreds of kids hunting and fishing, given out over $2 million in scholarships, and they provided over $4 million in grants to protect wildlife and habitat at home and abroad. They host great monthly events and an annual convention where you can meet other hunters and learn about all types of hunting. Don't let the name mislead you. They're not just about safaris, but definitely about all kinds of hunting, education, conservation, protecting the future of hunting. That's the Houston Safari Club Foundation. Join today. Call 713-623-8844 or go to wehuntwegive.org to learn more. Higher Calling is brought to you by Texas Fishing Game Magazine, our official sponsor. You can check the online edition out at fishgame.com and also subscribe to their e-newsletter. And if you'd like to meet a personally subscribe you to that newsletter because I actually can do that. You can email me at chester at chestermore.com. Fishgame.com is not only wildlife and fisheries in Texas, but we cover things going on nationwide. And you definitely subscribe to the newsletter three updates a week. Killer, killer stuff put together by yours truly. Once again, Higher Calling is sponsored by Texas Fishing Game Magazine at fishgame.com. You've been listening to The Higher Calling, hosted by the wildlife journalist Chester Moore. Contact him at chester at chestermore.com. Follow him at thechestermore on Instagram and his blog at highercalling.net.